Wow, good morning, everybody. You know, it was just two days ago that we had 400 elementary age kids that are sitting right where you're sitting right now. And they uh, were part of a week-long vacation Bible school. And we had, I, I, it seems like I say this every year after VBS, that this one was the best VBS ever. And this one truly was. It was a great VBS. How many of you had a kid involved in VBS? Okay, okay. Hopefully they attested what I just said. But it, it really was a great week. I, I had a serious VBS hangover yesterday. Um, many kids came to faith in Jesus this past week. And uh, our missional focus was Cherish Uganda. You might remember our orphan care weekend back in mid-April. We brought out the CEO of Cherish, Pastor Brent Phillips, and I interviewed him right here. And at that point, we announced that we were raising money for a, uh, an ultrasound machine. And our goal uh, for their maternity ward, our goal was $4,000. This week, we raised $7,800. Is that amazing or what? Yeah, really a great week. Well, I'm so glad that you all have joined us this morning, and those of you who are joining us online, welcome. We're thankful that you're with us as well as we continue our uh, sermon series, Rock Solid, learning about the character of God as displayed in the Psalms. And the, the bedrock, the anchor of this entire series comes from Psalm 61, verse 1 and 2, and it says this, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And over the past few weeks, just to kind of get you caught up in case you've missed a week or two, we've learned about how our God fights for us. We've learned about how God is our shepherd, about how God is our source of peace, Last week, Dr. Dick Foth, he shared how God is a father to the fatherless. And this morning, we will take a look at Psalm 51, where we will learn, and this is number one in your outline if you're following along, we'll learn that God is our restorer. God is our restorer. And this particular psalm, it's known as a psalm of lament. Now, lament is not a word that we use a whole lot these days, but what it means is to be filled with profound grief and sorrow. It's a means of crying out to God, of petitioning God from the very depths of our souls. All of us have been in situations where we have experienced loss or grief or we've been confused or scared. That's certainly the case over this past year, right? Situations where we have no idea what to do and we've cried out to God. That is lament. A favorite author of mine, Ken Geyer, he says, we reach for God in many ways through our sculptures and our scriptures, through our pictures and our prayers, through our writing and our worship, and through them, he reaches for us. Psalm 51 was written as a way of reaching for God. It was written by David. Yes, that David, King David, 
the man after God's own heart. And the reason he wrote this psalm is because of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And it wasn't just an affair, as with so many times that we engage in sinful activity, we like to cover up our sin, right? And that was certainly the case with King David. He was no different. He tried to cover up his sin by arranging for the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in battle. And you can read all of the scandalous details in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Like David, we have all been in this kind of spot, haven't we? Where we screwed up so badly that we don't know what to do. It's kind of like looking at the pieces of an old car and trying to put them together and you think, where do I even start? So let's dive into Psalm 51 and understand that when it comes to restoring our souls, the first place to start is to the second point of your outline, is to confess your sin. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. David opens the psalm by confessing his sinfulness before a perfect God. Now, this idea of confessing or confession are terms that we usually attribute to the Catholic faith. Confession is a bit of a foreign concept to those of us who are Protestants. But those of you who come from a Catholic background, you are very well acquainted with the practice of confession. But confession isn't just a Catholic thing, but should be a regular practice in all of our lives. In fact, Jesus' brother James reminds us that we should confess our sins to one another. Confessing the people that you are close to is a healthy spiritual practice. But when it comes to sin... We typically like to hide when we mess up, don't we? We hide because we are overcome with embarrassment, overcome with guilt, overcome with shame. And I want to camp here for just a moment and focus particularly on guilt and shame. Because if there's anything that you and I have in common is the fact that all of us have experienced varying degrees of guilt and shame in our lives. One of them is really helpful, and one of them can be really harmful. You see, guilt says, I did something bad. 
But shame says, I am something bad. Being riddled with guilt can be a good thing in that it allows a person to experience remorse over something that they have done, which can lead to change. Author and speaker Dr. Brene Brown, she's an expert on shame. She says, I believe there is a profound difference between guilt and shame. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. Shame is something totally different. Dr. Brown goes on to say that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Let me read that again. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I know some of you are at this place. You're here because of something that you've done or perhaps something that was done to you. And because of that, you feel unworthy of love and unworthy of belonging. And I want you to know that if you get nothing else out of this message this morning, I want you to know that God loves you deeply. I want you to know that you are worthy. And if for some reason you're at a place in your life where you are experiencing profound shame and you just cannot get past it, we want to journey with you and help you on the path to wholeness. So simply send an email to the church and we'll find someone to walk alongside you. What David is doing in this psalm is outwardly confessing to God his guilt and it's uncomfortable. That's how it is when we confess, isn't it? It's not always easy. In 2005, a guy named Frank Warren, he came up with a plan for people to own up to the things that they've done wrong or things that they've hidden. Post-secret began as an art project where people could design a postcard, put their secret on the card, and then mail it anonymously to Frank. Over a million cards have been sent in since 2005. And the secret postcards sent in have ranged from the innocent, like this one. When you left, I replaced you with a cat. (laughs) To the nervous... I'm going to my 40th class reunion and I'm still worried that I'm not cool enough to even the horrific. I cheat at cards with grandma. I mean, who does that? Some of you here probably need to come clean and confess. Frank has become known as the internet's most trusted stranger and he believes that secrets can either become walls or bridges. And as it relates to David, his affair with Bathsheba had become a wall in his relationship with God. 
And because of that, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And his secret was out. And once confronted, David simply confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. And the lesson here is that it's only through the confession of sin that true restoration can begin. So what does it mean to be restored? Well, I've been a classic car lover all of my life, since I was a kid. And I've owned several classic cars. My first vehicle was a 68 Volkswagen Squareback. How many of you remember Squarebacks? I've also owned a 64 Chevy Nova, a 54 Chevy truck, which I'm going to come back to in just a moment, and my favorite, a 57 Chevy. And all of them were in various stages of restoration. For those of you who have restored something, whether it's an old car or an old house or an old piece of furniture, you know that restoring something is truly a labor of love, isn't it? I mean, a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and money goes into restoring something. And the reason we restore something is to get it back to what it once was. To get something back to its original state, to its original splendor, to give it new life. God is in the business of restoring people. His desire is to never leave you and I in our brokenness, but instead, He desires to give us new life. And I think that's why I despise the current cancel culture. You're all aware of that, right? The cancel culture is uh, where an indiscretion uh, comes to light that someone did 10, 20, 40 years ago. And once that indiscretion is made known, people become vicious. And uh, they want to cancel that person. They want to make sure that person has no influence, has no voice. They would just as soon that person ceased to exist. Thankfully, you and I serve a God who doesn't hold us where we were, who doesn't keep us stuck in how we used to be. He doesn't cancel us. And I don't know if there's anything more attractive about the gospel message than the fact that God is a God of second chances. What we see when we read the scriptures is that God was then and he is now a God of second chances. And that to me is the overarching beauty of the scriptures. Because God has been and will always be a pursuer of you and me. Even when we fall, when we miss the mark, when we get off in the weeds, God is there to restore us, to bring you and I back onto the straight path and back into a right relationship with him. Now we know the actual work of restoration is never easy. It's costly. It takes time. There's starts and stops along the way. But it all begins with confession. And then once we confess our sins to God, 
then we can receive the forgiveness of God. David continues in the psalm by stating, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restoration always involves confession. And though it's not easy, it always involves a second component. And that is the third point in your outline, which is forgiveness. My friend, Matt Barnhill, he says that forgiveness is an antibiotic for the soul. It inoculates against hate and bitterness, and it opens the path to relationship. I mentioned that 54 Chevy a few minutes ago. And, uh, oh, there I am. Mr. Cool, right? Oh, that was the greatest truck. I had that truck. I bought it in 19... 87, and uh, I was in the army at the time, and my dad and I, I, I was born and raised in Anaheim, California, and my dad and I, we drove that truck from Anaheim to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where I was stationed, and I had that truck in car shows. I mean, it was just the greatest truck, right? But toward the end of my stint in the army, I started to have some engine problems to the point that I knew it wouldn't make it on a drive clear across country, so I had to tow it. Well, thankfully, the Army paid me $3,000 to, uh, to transport my household goods. So uh, I, I arrived back in, in Orange County. I had $3,000, a broken truck. Thankfully, I had a family member who worked at a, uh, at a hot rod kind of speed shop in Santa Ana, where they would fix and restore old vehicles. And I'm like, this is just the greatest thing. So I gave him the money, I gave him the keys to the truck, and he said, I'll have it all fixed and back to you in a month. Well, a month comes and goes, no truck. Two months, three months, six months, no truck. The next time I saw that truck, Somebody have a tissue. <laughs> it was in the basement of an Anaheim warehouse. And the hood, the front fenders, the engine, the transmission were all in the bed of the truck. What I didn't know at the time was that this family member was using cocaine. So he literally put all that money up his nose. Now you might say that <laughs> Forgiveness was the furthest thing from my mind at that point. In fact, my state of unforgiveness lasted for several years. But one night I was really convicted by God to reach out and call this family member. So I did. And I said, hey, 
Growing up, we were close. We were like brothers. And I said, hey, I want to restore our relationship again. I want you to know that I forgive you for what happened. And I don't tell you that to pat myself on the back, but to illustrate that forgiveness can be really, really difficult. And forgiving others, for sure, has its own challenges. But perhaps even more difficult is the painful work of forgiving oneself. I know many people, and I know you know many people, who've done some really awful things in their lives. And they just can't get past what they've done. In fact, I've actually had people tell me, if God only knew what I've done, well, God does know. And through the work of confession, God promises to extend forgiveness to you and to me. No matter what you've done, God offers the gift of forgiveness. How do we know that? All we got to do is look at God's word. 1 John 1.9 tells us, and I want you to read this with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The question for us is will we forgive or accept the forgiveness of God? If you do, then you're on the path to restoration. You know, one of the things that I love about the scriptures is that it doesn't hide the faults and flaws of its main characters. And it's filled with beautiful examples of confession, forgiveness, and restoration. A great example of this is found in the powerful story uh, of the prodigal son. Uh, it comes from the Gospel of Luke. And, and Dr. Dick Foth, he touched on it last week. But it's so important and so impactful that I thought it's worth revisiting again. It's a story where a young son asked his father for his share of the inheritance. The father gives the inheritance to the son, and off the boy goes. And over a period of time, he squanders his money on parties and wild living. And things are going pretty good until his money runs out. And he finds himself so hungry that he goes to work feeding pigs. And he longs to eat the food he's feeding the pigs. Author Brennan Manning, he states this, The days of wine and roses had left him dazed and disillusioned. The wine soured and the roses withered. His declaration of independence had reaped an unexpected harvest. Not freedom, joy, and new life, but bondage, gloom, and a brush with death. Well, finally, the son comes to his senses and he figures things out. He figures that things were better back at home. And he says to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. We see an example of confession in this story, don't we? And now we fast forward to where the son is at the most humiliating and most vulnerable point in his life. Because in going home, he has to face what he's done. And I'm sure that he had a fair amount of fear and trepidation in going home. But what happened? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The father, upon seeing his son in the distance, does what was only permitted for women to do in that culture, and that was to run. A father in first century Palestine would never, ever run. He was undignified. He was something that only women were allowed to do. Men in that day, they were supposed to remain aloof, disinterested, unemotional. But what do the scriptures say? He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And looking at the condition of his son, the father realizes what his son had done. Dad's no dummy. After all, he was once young himself. He knows the temptations that the world offers, and he knows that his son gave in to them. The world had chewed him up and spit him out. And some of you have been there, haven't you? Perhaps some of you are at this place now. But as this Rembrandt painting beautifully shows, as the son comes before the father, and in his state of being shoeless and penniless, the father extends forgiveness and restores his son. In regard to this particular story, author Philip Yancey, he comments, how different are these stories from my own childhood notions about God? A God who forgives, yes, but reluctantly after making the penitent squirm. I imagine God as a stern taskmaster, a distant thundering figure who prefers fear and respect to love. That's a perspective that a lot of people have these days about God. But that's not the story that Jesus tells. Instead, Jesus tells the story of a father rushing out to embrace a son who has squandered half the family fortune. There is no solemn lecture, I hope you've learned what you've done. Hope you've learned your lesson. Instead, what Jesus emphasizes is the father's exhilaration. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is now found. This story is important for all of us to take to heart because the father in the story illustrates the character, the father heart of God as he responds to you and to me when we confess 
and ask forgiveness for what we've done wrong. So, there's confession, there's forgiveness. And once you've experienced forgiveness for your sin, once you've experienced the forgiveness from God, you can't help but be, this is your final point to write down, you can't help but be compelled to tell others about the goodness of God. David continues, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Did you catch what David was saying there? Then I will teach transgressors your ways. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. See, David is using God's gift of forgiveness as a means to tell others about God's forgiveness. You and I have that opportunity also. Your story of experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus is your testimony of how your life has been radically changed. And it's something that nobody can ever take away from you. And God just might use your story to drastically and radically impact the lives of others. So tell people your story. My story is that my life was changed one night in my bedroom when I was 14 years old. See, I grew up in a family where my dad, my dad was an angry guy. He worked the graveyard shift for uh, AT&T. I mean, that alone would make anybody grumpy, right? But he was an atheist also. My mom was a follower of Jesus. But when she would want to take my brother and I to church on Sunday mornings, my dad would ridicule her and tell her things like, hey, you know how stupid church is? Don't you know that the pastors, they only want your money? Don't you have a brain? Can't you think for yourself? As a 53-year-old guy, I can still hear my dad's outbursts echoing in my brain. Because of that, my mom, my brother, and I would only go to church a couple of times a year. And of course, never with my dad. But in those few times, something stuck. And that night in my bedroom as a 14-year-old kid, I recognized that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And I invited Jesus into my life, and I promised to follow him forever. You want to hear something else? 
about 10 years before my dad died, he ended up giving his life to Jesus as well. And just as passionate as he was against the church as a practicing atheist, he was just as much for the church. He was a fully devoted, passionate follower of Jesus. And he would do whatever he could to tell others about the forgiveness that he received. He was fully restored. I hope that you've enjoyed Psalm 51 today, taking a little bit deeper look into it. And that you'll leave here with the understanding that all of us are under restoration. Amen? God is not finished with you yet, but will continue his work of restoring you until the day you die. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for our time together. We thank you for your word as it's holy and it's true. We thank you that you're a God who loves us passionately, who pursues us lovingly. We thank you that you're a God who offers forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross in our place so that we can live with you in heaven forever. And God, I want to take a moment to just uh, pray with those who might be experiencing profound guilt, profound shame in their lives. If that is you, I want you to know that God sees you. God knows what has happened. And in spite of that, God loves you and will use your experience for great things. And if there's someone here this morning who wants to confess and receive your forgiveness and wants to be guaranteed eternal life, you can repeat this prayer with me. Simply say, Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess that I have done many wrongs. And I ask that you forgive me and come and live in my heart so that I can live with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.